Good morning and welcome to Redemption Church. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And I first want to just invite everybody to take a deep breath. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Uh, I, <laughs> I, uh, I want to share a verse with you, actually. This was a verse I shared with our staff this week just as we were praying for you guys and we were praying for our country. Um, and God just has such a good way of using his word to uh, help to recalibrate our focus and our hearts. And I want to read something to you from Psalm 146. You don't have to turn there necessarily. We might be able to put this up on the screen, I think. But let me just read this to you. Psalm 146 says this, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life and I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes or presidents in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob and whose hope is in the Lord their God, because he... He's the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them, and he remains faithful forever. That's our confession. That's what we believe. That's why we can sing like we just did. So I just wanted to encourage all of us and help uh, all of us with that today. Um, this is a very important week in the life of our country um, because we do have amazing freedoms here, and um, those freedoms were purchased on the backs and the blood of men and women who faithfully and courageously serve um, all around this planet. Uh, and so we want to take a moment and recognize um, those who are serving or those who have served in the armed forces and the military. Uh, and if you, would, if you would just stand just so we can recognize you here in this room and then also on the live stream, because we'd like to say thank you um, for your service and thank you. Thank you to your families as well. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 5. We're continuing um, our study in the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 5 and look at a story there this morning. I want to back up just a, a little bit. I know some of you, maybe this is your first Sunday here, or you're just kind of bombing in on us, and so a special welcome to you, uh, either in the room or, or online. But, but as you're turning to John chapter 5, I want to kind of catch you up and recapture for you, just for a second, what's happening here in John's account of the life of Jesus. And you really don't have to wonder what John is up to. And if you were with us when we started this series, this is, this is what we started with. But John clearly tells us the purpose in writing this book um, in verses um, 30 and 31 of John chapter 20. And I'll just read that to you. This is what the text says. This is what John is up to with this letter, with this account, and he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, one of which we're going to look at this morning, which are not written in this book, but these are written, this is what John's doing, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
We believe as, as Christians that the book of John is given to us by the Holy Spirit, by the hand of an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, given to the church for these reasons, that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the King, the promised one, the, the Messiah, and that all that the Old Testament had spoke of, had prophesied about in the fulfillment of God's big plan of redemption and reconciliation with creation, all of that is going to happen in the person and the work of Jesus. And John is writing to convince us of that, that he's not just the Christ, that he's the very Son of God. And you're going to see in the text this morning, that's a real sticking point with a lot of people that Jesus is the Son of God, co-eternal with the Father, has always been, will always be, unlike any other who's ever been. Jesus is fully human, fully God. He's not just some moral philosopher. He's not just a great teacher who had some great ideas and thoughts, because if that's all he was, then we could really take it or leave it. But we have to listen because he's God, and that's what John is ultimately driving us to. So every time we open this book, that's what John is pointing us to. That's what John is driving us to, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God, that we would have life in his name. And to be in Christ is to be in the righteousness or the set rightness of Christ and the life of Christ and the power of Christ. Us being in Christ is where life is found, not off on our own with Jesus as some kind of add-on or addendum to our life. Um, but to be in Christ is significant because what the Bible teaches us is that we were made by Jesus for Jesus, which is why ultimately life in Christ is the only place where you'll, you'll fully experience life uh, as God designed it to be. You've not been made by your spouse for your spouse. You won't find life there. You've not been made by your kids for your kids. You won't find life there. You've not been made by your work for your work. You won't find life there. Those things can't fulfill you because they didn't make you. But God has made you, therefore life is found in him. You've been made by Jesus for Jesus. There's an author named Frederick Brunner. He says this. This is the invitation that John presents for us. Come into union with the word who made you when you will come back to life. You came from him, so please come back to him. You were made for him, and the result of this reunion will be more than human existence. It will be human life. And that's the invitation that's available today. Not necessarily more moral betterment, but this is what you're called to, and this is what John is constantly driving us to. Union with Christ, reconciliation with Creator, real life. Okay, John chapter 5, and I'm going to read the first 18 verses of John chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years and when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Verse 9, and at once... 
The man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who's this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And later Jesus found him at the temple and said, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work until this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this text this morning. Father in heaven, we love you. And God, we do confess that the very breath that we draw right now is because of you. God, your word tells us that all things are made by you and for you, and you hold all things together. So this very moment is created by you, orchestrated by you, ordained before the foundation of the world, and God sustained and held together right now. So Father, we come and we bow in your presence, and God, understand your authority and your power. And God, my confession, our confession is that we, we need that right now. God, this is a really ridiculous moment if we just try to wade through it on our own power, leaning on our own understanding, our own wisdom, our own intellect. And so, Father, I'm asking you to send your Holy Spirit to illuminate and to convict and to encourage And God, in your kindness, in many ways, lead us to repentance. God, to stir up in us an affection for you far greater than these things of the world, God, these idols that we attach ourselves to, these places we look for life that keep letting us down. So God, would you please speak clearly to us? And Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you've ever encountered or maybe at least even heard of a situation where there have been some kind of religious rules or ideologies or traditions that have been used to control people, where those things take precedent over caring for people, over compassion. And maybe you've stayed away from church for a long time because you've been on the receiving end of that, or maybe you've been guilty of that. Uh, I know I have. One of the great joys of being married to a young pastor is that you get to enjoy a young man who thinks he knows everything um, and then will actually use the Bible to back up his point. Um, And early on especially, I would get so lost um, in the the text that I would lose sight of what was actually written um, and who was behind the writing. And I would get so focused on the speck in someone else's eye that I couldn't see the logger forest in my own eye. And if you read the Gospels and you slow down and you see Jesus, you see that Jesus didn't really like people like that because he wasn't like that. But what John is doing is John's showing us what God is like, what he's all about. If you remember when we started this series, Pastor Tyler, he brought to us, he said, look, God is love. The scripture teaches that. 
And Jesus is God. That's John's whole point here. And what Jesus does as he walks the planet is he shows us what God is like. And he shows us what people who are loved by God, how they live out that love. And so what John is showing us today in chapter 5 is not just a random act of kindness that Jesus is doing. He's showing us a sign that's pointing to who Jesus claimed to be. Because Jesus, he makes some pretty incredible claims about who he is. And John is saying, look, I saw Jesus do thing after thing after thing, and I realized that they all had real significance, and they pointed to the uniqueness of Jesus, the other thanness of Jesus. And John's saying, I hope that you arrive at the same conclusion that I did, that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the sent one, the Son of God. It's like John is saying, look, these things that I'm telling you about, they convinced me, and I hope they convince you you too. We saw last week, and if you missed it, you can always go online and you can watch the past uh, sermons in the series, but we saw last week that Jesus healed the son of a nobleman. Tim took us through that. And Jesus and his guys, they go down to Jerusalem. Look at verse 2 again in chapter 5. We'll just kind of work through this. He, he says this, there's a pool in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool which Aramaic is called Bethesda, and it's surrounded by these five covered colonnades. In verse 3, just I want you to kind of use your imagination now as we read through the story. Don't just let this be something that might be familiar to some of it, just kind of wash over you and kind of miss what it is. But let's try to really engage in the story here, engage our, our mind into it. But here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. So John's painting a picture for us of the most desperate group of people in society at that time. In the scripture, it says that they were, they were invalids. When we were at Preaching Collective, there's a group of us who get together to study this passage before we teach it. We even kind of spoke amongst ourselves, like, can you even use that phrase anymore? Can you even use that word anymore? Invalid. You know what that means? It means invalid, which is how these people were seen in culture and society at that time. You're invalid. It doesn't matter. You don't count. You can't contribute. But this is where Jesus chooses to go. And again, you have to kind of engage your imagination and really kind of see what Jesus is seeing as he walks by these pools. And you have to understand that in ancient times, doctors were scarce uh, and they really didn't know much. Uh, and one reason is that in the first and second century in Rome, there was a law, and the law of that was that a doctor could not examine a dead body. They could only examine living bodies. So one of the things that doctors would try to do is they would try to get to a dying body quick enough so that they could do kind of a little bit of an autopsy on that body before it completely died, because once that person had died, they could no longer mess with it. So they had to do kind of like a live-action autopsy on bodies. So doctors are scarce, and doctors are scary in this time. And only very wealthy people had access to doctors, so most people, especially the poor, which would, by and large, it's what, what this group would have been that Jesus is walking into, they had to rely on temples and they had to rely on superstition. 
And they would go to temples because maybe the gods would do something for you. Maybe the priest could bless you. Maybe the priest would have mercy on you. And then superstition. This story here actually hinges on a superstition. So most of uh, manuscripts uh, have in verse 4, and your, your text might actually be missing at verse 4. I don't even know if you noticed that. But if you look down, verse 4 might not just even be in there. It's probably a footnote. But there was a legend that said that once in a while, an angel of the Lord would show up and stir the water. When the water started to bubble up in this pool, the first person in the pool would be healed. Uh, And this pool has actually been excavated, and and there was a reservoir that fed into this pool. What they discovered, that there's actually a natural spring that was underneath these pools, the bottom of this pool. And what would probably happen, occasionally the spring would bubble up, and when they would see the surface of the water disturbed, people assumed, oh, that's the angels, and they would all try to rush to get into the pool, and the first one um, would be presumably healed. Now, you have to imagine just the chaos of this scene. Now, again, there's no other reason real way for you to get the healing or the care that you so desperately need. And so all around this pool, the lame, the blind, the paralyzed are there, the severely sick. And Jesus walks into this area that I promise you, healthy people would have avoided this place like the plague because it was like the plague, but this is where Jesus chooses to go. I bet it smelled horrible. I bet it was so difficult to, to, to look at. Um, when I was in Ethiopia, we have some partners there that our church works with that are doing incredible ministry there. But there are parts of the city and then the parts of these streets uh, where we'd walk around in Addis Ababa and there's, there's kind of certain parts where people um, who had severe uh, disabilities, there were a lot of people we saw who were blind. So at childbirth, um, they would get some kind of eye infection, something that's readily taken care of here, but they didn't have the medicine. So the, these people would get eye infections when they were born. They've been blind and their eyes are just incredibly disfigured. There's a ton of violence against people. So they would be disfigured dismembered in many ways, um, just a ton of just really difficult things to see. And, and most people would choose to try to not see them. And not just foreigners, not just people uh, uh, that were there from other countries, but, but Ethiopians themselves would completely ignore these people. They're begging for food. They're begging for money. And it was as if they weren't even there. They would choose to go to the other side of the street or choose to just walk by them and not even look at them because it's extremely difficult to, to, to look at. And here... At the pool, you have lame and sick, and they would lay there all day long. And if you'd have family or friends, they'd drop them off in the morning, and then they'd take them home at night. If not, they would literally lay there filthy all day long. And I'd imagine that this is the type of place where every so often officials would have to come in and cart out the dead bodies, clean up that area. But Jesus chooses to go here. And John tells us in verse 5, there's a man, he's been there for 38 years, and Jesus saw him, and I like how the NAV says it. He says he learned about him. He learned about him. He inquired about him. And I don't know why this particular guy, but Jesus decides this is going to be an opportunity for me to display who I am. And so he leans down, and he asks a 
Kind of a strange question to ask someone who's laying at a magical healing pool all day. But he says to him in verse 6, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And let me ask you this, that question. Do you want to get well? Because not everybody does. That's why he has to ask. Do you want to get well? Because for some of you, getting well feels harder than staying sick. Because for some of you, getting help calls for more humility. It calls for more loss relationally. For some of you, getting well means a financial loss or a reputation loss. There's a security sometimes that feels at risk for getting well. So the question to you today is, do you want to get well? Because it's a powerful question that Jesus asked, because sometimes the identity of being sick feels like something that you can't leave. Sometimes the habit or the preference or the affiliation with others who share a common sickness, it seems like it's just too expensive. It's just too much to overcome. So do you want to get well? Because that question and that invitation is not just one for centuries ago. It's alive and healing is available today. Back to the story. So it turns out the guy does got to get well, but he has no idea who Jesus is. And so he's probably thinking, uh, yeah, guy, the pool's not my first choice of what I want to be doing with my life. So look at what happens in verse 7. Listen to what he says to him. He says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. He's all alone. He says, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So I just imagine, I imagine Jesus kneeling down because I can't really imagine Jesus just standing over the top of him saying, do you want to get well? No, I, am, I imagine Jesus full of compassion getting down low. So not only would people avoid this whole area, now Jesus is doing something. And I have to imagine, again, I'm imagining that his disciples would be watching him saying, oh, what in the world are we doing now? And Jesus gets down low. Maybe he just wasn't on one knee. Maybe he's on both. Maybe he was right there in the ear of this man. In verse 8, so he says, Jesus said to him, get up. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. The Greek is really interesting there because sometimes that phrase is translated, wake up. Come alive. Get up. Rise up. And what he said next is actually what made this a sign and not just a random act of kindness because he said, pick up your mat and walk. Verse 9, and at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. Now, Jesus is strategic and intentional in everything that he does. We saw when Tim taught the story of the, when he goes to uh, the Samaritan woman, it, it, he says he had to go there. He didn't have to. He could have gone around like everybody else. Uh, he's extremely strategic in the story we saw last week where the nobleman's son is healed. So he's intentional here. It's, this might just seem like this kind of random act of kindness that he's doing, a random healing, a random guy, a random place, a random day. But John gives us this clue in verse 9 that might not mean a whole lot to us, but to first century Jews, this would have been a very important detail to the story because John tells us the day in which he cured the man was the Sabbath. 
Now, on the Sabbath, this day of rest, really important to the Jewish culture, and in Jerusalem especially, and around the temple specifically, the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, they're walking around and they're making sure that nobody is violating the laws of the Sabbath. And they see this man who's carrying his mat, and he's walking towards the temple, and maybe he's going towards the temple because he's going to give thanks to God for his healing. I'd have to imagine that uh, he probably hasn't been to the temple for years, at least 38 years, um, and he's going to maybe offer a sacrifice. And these Jewish leaders see him, and listen what they say to him in verse 10. So 38 years, lame, invalid, laying by the pool. He's up walking around. Listen what the religious leaders say to this man. They said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Not like, whoa, walking? Could you do this the whole time? What have you been doing? Not like, this is a miracle. Praise God. How did this happen? No, they said, hey, man, what you doing with that mat? can't be carrying your mat today. There's a commentator, Andreas Kosenberger, he says this, the picture that John paints of Jewish sensibilities regarding oral traditions pertaining to the law shows a religiously short-sighted people who have forgotten the true intent of the law, and more important still, of the God who gave it to them. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us how Jesus calls the Pharisees blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel, a description of people who've lost sight of what is truly important in one's religious life. Those were the people who tithed even spices, mint, dill, but neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And even worse, the religious leaders used the multitude of religious regulations as sort of this leverage over common people in order to retain their own position of power and privilege. And Jesus says of them, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. You see, these are the people that Jesus is at odds with. Now, actually... The law didn't forbid him from carrying his mat. Their tradition would forbid him from carrying his mat. It was called the tradition of the elders, and sometimes it's called the oral Torah. And the, and the theory is, is that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he came down with the written Torah or the law, and he came down with an oral Torah, and he passed that on to Joshua, who passed it on to the judges, who passed it on, along to the prophets, and eventually it made its way to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had all these extra rules that were kind of like a fence that was written around the law so that nobody would d- disobey the, the written law. But the oral Torah, in their mind, had the same authority as the written Torah. The the oral Torah had 39 categories, not just 39 things, 39 categories of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath, and one of them was that you could not carry something from one place to another. So in the mind of the Pharisees, this man, when they see him, he's violating the fourth commandment, which is, remember the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Now... The point of that commandment was to take a break from labor, not from love. 
It meant to take a break from your occupation. It didn't mean that you were supposed to take a break from compassion. And unless this man's vocation was mat carrier, he wasn't even breaking their tradition. But we have to pay attention to this because this is what happens to religious people when you forget or ignore the why behind the what. And, and just to bother you a little more or a little more acutely this morning because you need that, this is what happens when defending an ideology or a political agenda or party loyalty or opinion or preference takes precedent over the people that those things claim to serve. Church, this is what happens when we focus on the mat and we miss the miracle. Now, I'm going to needle, and before you start thinking, man, I hope all the Republicans are listening to this, or I hope all the Democrats are listening to this. If you're in another political party, you're just happy to be here. So, <laughs> Or before you start thinking, man, I hope fill-in-the-blank group is listening to this. We all have to look in the mirror and ask God to search us and reveal to us our own idolatry and move us to repentance. We all have to be honest with ourselves. Because when what is most loving for people is no longer what is most important to you, you are at odds with God. When I am not most concerned with what God is most concerned with, I am at odds with God. And I can say that because a few chapters ago in John, John tells us what God is all about, John 3.16. He says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John saying every race and every gender for generations, he loved them so much that he sent his son into the world that those who would believe would have their offenses against God forgiven and they could be put back together with him. And so what that means for us is when I have perspectives or I have prejudices or I have affiliations that separate me from people that God loves, that's a sin. And the reason this matters so much, church, hang with me, is because right now the integrity of the message of the church, the name of Jesus, the mission of God is at stake. I mean, I remember when there was a time when the thing that we were most concerned about was our friends and family and neighbors and coworkers who were separated from God and headed to an eternity apart from Him forever. I remember when that was the most important thing, not which side was going to win. Back to the story. Verse 10. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, well, the man who made me well, he said, pick up your mat 
and walk. And essentially saying, guys, look, I'm sorry, I don't even know who healed me, but he told me to get up and walk. And so if I have to choose who to listen to, I'm going to go with him. I'm not going to go with the religious people who have ignored me all my life and who told me that I deserve to lay there because either I sinned or my parents sinned. So if you're right, and I was getting what I deserved because of my sin or because of my parents' sin, then this guy gave me exactly what I did not deserve. So I chose to pick up my mat and walk. There was a theory that was held among the Pharisees that if a woman was pregnant and she went into a pagan temple, that she sinned, but that her child also sinned along with her. And that child may pay for their mother's sin. And later on in John, we're going to see in chapter 9, the disciples are going to ask Jesus about this man who was born blind, and they say, Jesus, so who is it that sinned? Was it the man or the, or the parents? And, and Jesus said, it's not from his sin nor from his parents, but so that the work of God may be displayed in him. So this whole, this guy, his whole life, he, he's under this religious system that had convinced him that the reason that he had to lay there was because he had done something wrong. And so the Pharisees, they ask a very logical question in verse 12. They say, well, who is this guy who healed you? Who is this guy? Because he's also defied the Sabbath. There's another rule that the Pharisees have. You can't heal on the Sabbath unless it's to save a life. And this man's lame. He wasn't, he wasn't in jeopardy of losing his life. And here's one more thing, too. Jesus, he could have waited a day. He could have waited a day and avoided all of this drama. So they want to know, okay, who, who healed you? Because we want to go after him. Look at verse 13. It says this, The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus slipped away into the crowd that was there. And later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Now, now commentators are kind of split on this point. Um, on what Jesus is talking about here, but of the things that I listened to and the things that I read, I want to give you what I think is most likely. Jesus heals him, and then he warns him not to sin so that something worse might happen to him. And you, you see echoes of this in the Bible. In Psalm 32, listen to this, For when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer." Selah, which means think about that. And then the psalmist goes on to say, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin and healed me. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, look, the physical sickness, this physical infirmity that was a part of your life is not greater then the final judgment of sinners who do not come in repentance and faith by the unmerited favor of God, the grace of God, to confess that Jesus is Lord. What Jesus is saying there is like the judgment that rightly rests on those that do not submit to the authority of Jesus as Lord and Savior, and because of that, walk in a way that loves God with heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, those, that ends in an eternity separated from God. It ends in hell. Jesus is saying, watch out, because that's worse than your physical sickness. Verse 15, as we close, he says this, the man went away 
And he told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. And so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, well, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I, too, am working. There's two things about the authority of Jesus. First, the authority of Jesus is going to confront strongly held beliefs in our lives. The authority of Jesus is going to confront these strongly held beliefs in our lives. In this passage, that strongly held belief is around the tradition that these religious leaders held about the Sabbath. And Jesus, in his life and with his authority, he's confronting their beliefs and their traditions about the Sabbath. And it's created this anger and this animosity towards the authority of Jesus, so much so that they miss the miracle of a man who's healed after 38 years. Now, most of us, we don't really have a strong conviction about the Sabbath. I don't really think that we're going to turn our back on Jesus because of the Sabbath teaching. But Jesus will confront you over and over and over again. Because he's not just a teacher. He's not just somebody who walked planet Earth with some great thoughts and ideas and did some pretty nice things for people. He's God. Jesus is going to confront us. He's going to confront our culture around ideas and issues of sexuality. He's going to confront our politics. He, there will be confrontation around issues of how we handle our parenting and our marriages, around issues of how we treat one another, particularly the poor and the marginalized. He will confront us in issues of how we steward our time and our resources and our vocation and our finances. He's going to confront us around issues of holiness, and he can because he's God. He's going to confront us, and when that confrontation happens, we're either going to say, you know what, the authority of Jesus wins, or we're going to say, no, my preference, my perspective, my opinion wins, and Jesus is meant to serve that, and what I want, what I think is best for me. And the Word of God and the Spirit of Christ dwelling inside you will confront a compulsion that you have. And in that moment, you say, I'm, I'm going to submit to the one who has all the power. I'm going to submit to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Or you will say, no, I'm the king. I'm my own king. You see, the righteous path of loving like Jesus is a difficult path. It's not always easy to follow the Lord, even with all the promises that we know that are true. There are things that Jesus asks us to step into and that he asks us to step into him because he knows what's best for us far more than we do. But really, that's not even what gets the Pharisees all fired up in this story. It's when Jesus effectively says, look, God doesn't take a day off from keeping the universe together. I'm just being like God. And when he says that, they just go... What happens in verse 18? They're like, Jesus, who do you think you are calling yourself equal to God? That's the question. Jesus, who do you think you are? And that's the question that John is putting to us. Because it's pretty clear. I mean, the more we're seeing Jesus, the more we're listening to him, and the more we're seeing him show up in the, in the world, it's clear who Jesus thinks he is. But the question to you is, who do you think he is? 
Who do you think that Jesus is? Because that's the point of the signs. That's why Jesus did what he did, so that people would know who he is. Do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what God would do if he were walking around the world? Jesus says, watch me. Watch what I do. Watch what I do. Do you, as a Christian, want to know, how am I supposed to show up in the world, in this crazy, crazy world? How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to show up? Do you want a pattern, or better yet, a person to follow? Follow the person of Jesus. This is why the gospel accounts of Jesus are so important, because in a world of political and ideological assumptions and accusations and tensions, God steps in and he says, I'm going to make it really clear. And he showed up and he spoke out. And as it relates to the tension in the first century, and I think even the the tension today, the point is very clear. Love God with your heart and your soul and your mind, literally your muchness. And contextually for today especially, love your neighbor more than your potentially flawed ideologies, opinions, and perspectives. Because we're all wrong about something. Everybody in this room, you've had attitudes or you've had perspectives or views that have changed about certain things over the years. If you don't believe me, just try to think back when you were in middle school, right? (laughs) Now, it's not totally fair because your frontal lobe wasn't developed fully. I know, you know, there's all that. But we all carry some flawed views about a lot of things. And if our views on things can change and people are created in the image of God and God so loved people that he gave his only son then shouldn't loving people take priority over our ever-changing perspectives and preferences? Now, I know this whole line of talking and thinking will make people nervous because somebody out there is thinking, well, what about the absolutes? And to that, I would say, absolutely. And the Bible makes it very clear. What are the absolutes with Jesus? And in Jesus, the brilliant thing about him was that compassion didn't mean compromise. That's the brilliance of Jesus, showing us that truth and love are not at odds with each other. Brett Berger, who's a longtime member here, he's a professor at GCU, he, he said this this past week. He said, Christians have tended to divide temperaments between truth and love people, noting the temptation to be concerned for one and neglect the other. Love, however, is not the opposite of truth. The opposite of truth is falsehood, deception, misunderstanding. According to Jesus, the unloving man is not one too concerned with truth, but one who does not know the truth about God, his neighbor, and himself. But church, we got to get ready because the wave of culture will make you feel like you have to choose one. Like you have to sacrifice one over the other. And my prayer is that we show up in the world like Jesus. Where we show up like Jesus, where people are like, what are these people? We graciously hold to unchanging truth and in humility extend love even to our enemies. We are resolved in truth, never changing, never moving, radical in love. I want to close with this, and the band's going to come up, and we're going to move into a time of communion and singing. 
But there's just questions, I think, that John is really pushing us to this morning. And to Christian, we have to wrestle with the question, what's the mat that I'm focused on? What's the mat that I'm lasered in on that's making me miss the miracle of what Jesus is doing in the world? What's getting in the way of loving people that God loves? Because Jesus came to show how much we are loved by God and how to love one another. And when we don't, and this is the crazy thing about God, even when we don't, he's the one who paid for our sin of not loving him and not loving others. If you're in the room or you're watching online and you're not a Christian and you're watching this and you're trying to track with John and trying to see, well, what is it that these Christians actually believe? The question for you is what John is, I think, constantly putting up. According to John, everything hinges on our belief in Jesus as the Son of God. That's the point. That's the question. Who do you say that he is? And I pray that you're wrestling with that, and I pray that God is making you unsettled in that. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Jesus, I thank you for your life. I thank you um, for giving us life. God, we know that we do not enter into relationship with you because of good deeds or because of trying harder or because of caring. God, we enter into life with you because of what you have done completely and fully on your cross. And God, we want to enter into this moment of communion and take the bread and the cup. God, confess our weakness, confess our sin, confess our idolatry, and proclaim that you and you alone are King, the Son of God, the Messiah, the sent one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, we love you. God, help us to love like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.